Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, well, again, a a very special welcome to anyone that is perhaps with us uh, for the first time and joining us as we take this next step together in the series that we have been looking at uh, out of the Gospel of Mark. And so uh, if you uh, are with us here, if you're listening online, if you want to take out a Bible, that would be great. Uh, I just love to see people scribbling in their Bibles, Uh, not our church Bibles, but in your own Bible. Uh, Scribble in the Bibles uh, or at least highlighting on your phones and your tablets, just helpful um, to be able to remember where do I go if I want to re-go over what we looked at today. And remember the the focus for the series that we're in that we've titled Living with Jesus has sort of two dimensions to it. We've been looking at what was it like for the disciples to actually live with Jesus? What was it like to live in the presence of Jesus personally, physically? What, what, What sort of experience did they have? What was the challenge like? What was the blessing like? And then to understand We believe Jesus is alive today, and by His Spirit, we have a relationship with Him now. And so, what can it be like for us to live in a relationship with Jesus? What can we expect? What kind of challenge, what kind of hope can we have as we do that? And last week, we looked at this call from Jesus to intimacy of relationship with Him to come and be with him. And I shared some things that I hope would be practical helps um, as you journey forwards on that. I'm not sure how many of you tried. I'm not sure how many of you perhaps tried and found some opposition come to that uh, and some challenge. I know what it's like. You kind of think, I'm going to dedicate this time to spend time with God. And then it's like everything that could go wrong seems to go wrong during that time. And so if you have tried and it's been challenging, I want to encourage you, don't Don't give up. Don't give up. Um, Keep seeking to put some of those things into practice uh, because you will reap the spiritual reward from what you sow. And then we also looked at uh, out of that position of intimacy, how do we now begin to go and do the work that Jesus did like Jesus did it in our time today? in a slightly different space and in a different culture. Okay, so that was last week. Today, we're going to look at how people responded to Jesus, what they thought about Jesus as they saw him doing the things he was doing and saying the things that he was saying. And it raises some good questions for us. How do we view Jesus? What do we really think about Jesus when we look at his words and his works? And how might people Think about us if we choose to live with Jesus and say his words and do his works. Because Jesus says a challenging thing. He says that there will be similarities between the way that people have treated him and the way that people will now treat us as we choose to follow him. And so I recognize that that brings amazing blessing. People love Jesus And it brings real challenge too, because not everybody loved Jesus. And so I want to pray for us. Pray that our hearts and our minds would be able to engage uh, with this very significant passage that we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 3. So perhaps you want to join me as we pray for ourselves um, 
and you can pray for me because the more you pray for me, the better it is for all of you as well. And so, Lord, we, we come to you now and we invite your Holy Spirit to bring revelation, to bring understanding, to bring insight out of your living word, your words that are spirit and life for us. God, that you would transform our minds, that we would not be patterned after the pattern of this world, but that we would be transformed through the renewing of our mind to be able to understand life and this world and relationship with you as it is revealed from heaven. We want to pattern ourselves after your thinking. And so God, may we have the courage this morning to do that. Release kingdom courage right across the room and in me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Mark chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 20. says this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him because they said he is out of his mind, speaking of Jesus. And the teachers of the law who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. By the prince of the demons, he is driving out demons. Now, I want you to notice the two views that are represented here of Jesus. There are a group of people that are saying he's out of his mind, And there are a group of people who are saying he's essentially evil. And now, following this accusation of Jesus' nature and character, we have his response to these two accusations. And he deals with them in reverse order. So we'll look at them in reverse order as he does. Verse 23, he goes on to say now, So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. And in a sense, this first parable shows the the error of the second accusation. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. And essentially he's saying, that your accusation makes no logical sense. Now, verse 27, he goes on to say what's actually happening. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house, that's speaking of the devil, without first tying him up, then he can plunder the strong man's house. That's all the people that Jesus is bringing freedom and deliverance and healing to. Verse 28, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins, And every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Right, okay, so here we have Jesus responding to this first accusation of the teachers of the law. This is probably a delegation from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, the Council of Religious Legal Specialists. And they've come down to assess the ministry of Jesus, this growing and influential ministry of Jesus. And they are forced to reckon with the reality of the spiritual power of his ministry. 
Because everybody has known all of the different people who have been ill, who have been sick, who have been dead. And Jesus has raised people to life. He has healed the sick in every town. He is speaking and preaching these words of authority and power. And so it's very difficult for the religious leaders to just ignore what is happening. But we, we see in this passage they are unwilling to recognize the source of the power as actually coming from God. To which Jesus warns them they are in danger of a sin from which there can be no repentance. And therefore there can be no forgiveness. They have in their minds called the very person and work of the Holy Spirit evil. And Jesus is quite clear that their judgment of him is so broken and reveals such hardness of heart towards God that it's basically become impossible for them to recover from. They have separated themselves in their minds from the one, the Holy Spirit, the only one who is actually able to bring us to a place of conviction so that we can come to repentance and as a result of repentance, receive God's forgiveness. And so without being able to connect with the Holy Spirit, they position themselves in a place which essentially makes them unforgivable. Verse 31, we see that Jesus now turns to his family. This is challenging to his family. Verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. And I'm sure Jesus knows why he's being called, because they're saying he's gone crazy. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he responds, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Quite challenging towards Jesus' family. Essentially what he's saying is, you have assumed a privilege that you don't right now have the right to. And yet the people who are around me, who've chosen to follow me, they have that right now. And it's amazingly powerful because we see that this privilege of being connected with Jesus is reserved for and yet open to any that would recognize who he is and choose to actually respond to what he calls out of us. Okay, so what do we perhaps take out of this quite challenging passage of Scripture? Well, I think the first thing that we need to see, and this is what I really want to focus on this morning, is that people can have strong feelings about Jesus. And as a result of that, have strong feelings towards his followers. People do have strong reactions to Jesus. How many of you have witnessed that or have been able to see that? Perhaps in, in your own life, maybe you've had a strong reaction to Jesus in your past or even right now as, I, as I'm talking about it. Or your friends or your family, strong reactions to you. I think the reality is that people respond passionately one way or the other to the person, work, and words of Jesus. And we do need to settle in our hearts to some degree how people may think about us. Because the reality is, just as they labeled Jesus, 
They may wish to label us in the same way if we choose to identify with him as being crazy or being evil. Not sure how many of you have thought to been, been thought to be crazy or evil. Sometimes people can react with a measure of indifference to Jesus. But usually I've found that's because they haven't actually engaged with Jesus' words and Jesus' works. They haven't actually engaged with the deep challenge of Jesus to say that we have offended God and we need God's forgiveness. And the incredible invitation of Jesus that we can find that forgiveness in relationship to him. C.S. Lewis, I think, articulates these, these strong opinions that we can legitimately have towards Jesus very well in a radio interview that he, uh, that he did uh, that was later recorded in the book Mere Christianity. I'm not sure how many of you have perhaps read that, but I've got an excerpt from it here. So this is C.S. Lewis in this radio interview and that's recorded for us in the book uh, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. He goes on to say, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. I think you can see that C.S. Lewis has a strong opinion about Jesus. And we see here that he articulates for us these three views, two of which are found in the passage that we've looked at. The first is that he was mad, that he's out of his mind. And how challenging for Jesus to have his physical family that he's grown up with for 30 years, now considering him to be crazy. Not sure how many of you have perhaps had to experience that kind of challenge from those that are closest to you, perhaps a spouse or a parent or a child, and to have those that are closest to you not understand you is very difficult and very challenging. Then we see this other group that, that recognize and try to, to accuse him, not just of being crazy, but actually of being evil of being bad. And this group, this delegation, the Sanhedrin, these are the people who, if you like, are something of Jesus' peers. These are the people who are, who are meant to recognize and validate his ministry. 
I'm not sure perhaps how many of you have lived among people, maybe in a work context, and you've had peers who have perhaps teased you for being a Christian. I know people here who've been teased by their peers for being a Christian. Or perhaps those who you've really looked up to in your field, and they've looked down at you because of your faith in God. And then obviously we have C.S. Lewis saying, but there is another way to understand Jesus, and that is to understand him as God. And so we have these different opinions. Is he mad? Is he bad? Or is he God? Because we have to admit, for someone to think they're God and not be, that would mean that they have disconnected from reality. Or to know that you're not God and pretend that you are and give people hope that they can't actually have, that would be a great deception. And so I guess the question that we have to wrestle with, is there any validity in this third option? How could we perhaps believe that Jesus was and is who the Bible says he claimed to be? Well, I've got a a little video just for the sake of time that can hopefully articulate some of the big reasons that we do actually believe that. And so perhaps we can pop the sound up for this and, and hopefully our technology will work for us. So was Jesus right in what he said about himself? What evidence is there to support his claims? Well, the first piece of evidence is his teaching. Much of the New Testament records numerous occasions where crowds gather to hear Jesus teach. And on one occasion, on a mountain like this, more than 5,000 people gathered to listen to the teaching of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount has been widely acknowledged amongst the greatest teaching of all time. Jesus' teaching has been the foundation of our entire civilization. Many of our laws were originally founded on Jesus' teaching. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And then this, totally revolutionary, love your enemies. In fact, we've advanced in every field of science and technology, yet in 2,000 years, no one has ever improved on the moral teachings of Jesus. They are the greatest words ever spoken. They're the kind of words you might expect God to speak. Another thing that marked Jesus' life was his love for the marginalized, feeding the hungry, healing the sick. His character has impressed millions who wouldn't call themselves Christians. Time magazine called him the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness and love in the history of Western humanity. He was a person in whom even his enemies could find no fault and whose friends said that he was without sin. It's been said that our character is truly tested when we're under pressure or in pain. And when Jesus was being tortured, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Another piece of evidence is his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. No one else in history has had a whole collection of books written about them before they were born. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, 29 of them in a single day. Of course, it could be suggested he was a kind of clever con man who set out deliberately to deceive people. He read all these prophecies and he thought, right, I'm going to go through and I'm going to fulfill them all in my life. The difficulty with that theory is that, first of all, the sheer number of them. And then the fact that, humanly speaking, he had no control over many of these things. There were prophecies about the exact manner of his death, about the place of his burial, 
even about the place of his birth. Clever commander began to say, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to be born in Bethlehem. It's too late. Then the final piece of evidence, his conquest of death, the physical resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of Christianity. And this is relevant to every single one of us because we're all going to die. It's the ultimate statistic. One in one die. You go to a funeral. The coffin is lowered into the ground. It looks absolutely final. And it is. Unless Jesus died and was buried and then was raised to life. In which case, death has been conquered. Great. It would be so fantastic to be able to unpack some of those a little bit more for us. Um, but perhaps that's enough just to be able to shape for us the big reasons that we have to become confident in this other way of looking at Jesus. Later on in the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus connects with his disciples and he asks them this very important question. Mark 8 verse 27, it says this, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, there's been some distance from chapter three that we've been looking at until now, and a lot has happened. And so he says, now, who are people saying that I am? And they replied, and these replies are a little better than before. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. Then verse 29, one of the most important questions that Jesus asks of every one of us. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And we see Peter's response. He says, you are the Messiah. And in Matthew chapter 16, which records the same account, it says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so remember at this stage now in chapter 8, they have seen some amazing things that Jesus has done. They've heard more of Jesus' amazing teaching. They've seen more incredible spiritual healings. They've seen the woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years instantly healed as she reaches out and literally just touches his robe. They've seen the girl who died raised to life again. They've seen 5,000 people fed with five loaves and two fish. And then taken up more leftovers than when they began. They've seen Jesus walk on water. They've seen whole towns of people healed of every sickness and every disease. They've seen 4,000 people again fed with seven loaves. And again taken up a multitude of leftovers. And so this question comes to them. Are you getting it yet? Have you seen enough? To really know who I am. And they haven't seen the resurrection yet. They haven't seen Jesus die and raise to life. They will. After Jesus' resurrection, we know that all the disciples saw him. 500 people saw him at one time. He appeared to people for 40 days after his resurrection, teaching them about the kingdom. This was a very public reality, his death and his resurrection. That hasn't yet happened yet. We have that to help us to make this decision. But we see Peter's answer. You are the Messiah, the son of the 
living God. Peter was convinced. The disciples became convinced. Paul became convinced, even though he began persecuting the church. He was there when the first martyr was killed for their faith, holding the cloaks of those that were throwing the stones. And yet he encounters Jesus on the road uh, to Damascus. I was going to say Emmaus, but that's a different road. And he comes to faith in Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was probably amongst that group, who was thinking, my half-brother, my eldest half-brother, he is crazy. We see after the resurrection, he becomes convinced, my brother is God. I'm not sure what your siblings would have to do to convince you that they were God. My siblings would have to do an awful lot. (laughs) But James became convinced. C.S. Lewis was convinced. Well over two billion people living on the planet today have become convinced that Jesus is who he says he was. And so we have this question. Who do you say that Jesus is. Because there is an invitation. There is an invitation in this passage that we've looked at to become family with Jesus, to become family with him, family with Peter, family with the disciples, family with Paul, family with C.S. Lewis, family with two billion other people today who have called Jesus Lord. In Romans chapter 10, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. Romans chapter 10 from verse 9, it says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Interesting, we have to make a confession. We have to make it public. We have to be prepared to be seen as a follower of Jesus. Not to be ashamed of him. If we are prepared to confess with our mouth. Jesus as Lord, the one we will obey. And we will believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Then we will be saved. You will receive from God forgiveness. Every wrong thing that you have done against God and others gets cancelled in that moment that you confess your faith in God. And you receive from God his precious Holy Spirit that you can have connection with Him. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online, wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.